Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Ready to go? Yeah, I've got us up and we can adjust this stuff as needed once we're done too. Um, well, Christy, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you know, when I, when I first reached out to you, you sent uh, a list of topics that you felt you could speak to in, a, in a, a sophisticated manner, I guess. And I guess remember looking at the bullet points from all, I'm like, oh, these are all awesome topics. We might have to do more than one episode at some point to get through all of it. But uh, um, it's been a, an, it was an interesting, uh, I think you bring an interesting angle to our audience uh, for a couple of reasons. I think, uh, you know, one thing that I uh, would always notice when I first kind of started playing around with a ketogenic diet, or I should say one of the questions I'd get a lot is like, what are the differences between men and women with the ketogenic diet and kind of how that plays into making it sustainable or, or not sustainable. And, uh, you know, I have a hard time answering that not being a not being a woman. So it's always good to have someone with a, a good knowledge of the approach and, you know, certainly aware of some of the pitfalls that come along with uh, maybe not implementing it properly. So I think that and a few other things would be kind of fun to, to dive into today. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure that you guys invited me on. I'm excited. Cool. Yeah. And just so like our listeners have, uh, have an idea of kind of what your background is and kind of where you're coming from, if you want to just start out by giving us kind of a little bit of a, a background of like who you are and what you're up to and kind of what, a, what the day-to-day is like for you with, uh, you know, in the sciences. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So my name's Christy. I'm from Canada. I'm just outside of Toronto. And uh, I grew up in the natural health world from a very young age. My grandparents own a health food store. So I was exposed to this world very early. I started experimenting with my diet um, when I was like 15 years old. I started with a vegan diet because at that time, veganism was going to save the world and everyone's health. Uh, A couple of years later, I started playing around with paleo. But then I, some reason I came back to a vegan diet. I don't know. Instagram was becoming like a big thing and I was following all these young thin girls who were taking photos of beautifully plated foods and they were promoting eating in abundance and um, but then I listened to uh, Dom Biagostino on Joe Rogan and I was introduced to the ketogenic diet so I was like oh another diet I can I can play around with and at this time I was super skinny like I went from having a good amount of muscle to looking just emaciated and this was just from following the this like low fat, oil free diet, um, vegan diet. And uh, yeah, and then I started learning the science behind the ketogenic diet. And I was like, okay, like, I don't, I don't want to be eating all the time. Like, why are we promoting? Why would I want to be just constantly eating throughout the day? Like, there's clearly therapeutic benefits to fasting and mimicking the state of fasting with the ketogenic diet. And I naturally just became very passionate about it, just because I really loved knowing there was 
scientific research behind it. It was the only diet where you could be like, okay, there's a mechanism. Like we know it down to the cellular mechanism, why it's working, what it's doing. I mean, obviously there's still a lot to know, but for me, I was just very drawn to it because I've always had a passion for science. I had a science undergrad and um, yeah, so that's how I got introduced to the ketogenic diet. And then I started really diving into it when I reached out to Dom uh, and he replied to my email, which was like, I was fangirling pretty hard at the time. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, now I work for him. Uh, we write a lot together. We collaborate. And um, yeah, I, I guess everything I know is probably came out of the mouth of Dom at one point. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been a journey, a ride, and it's been really awesome. I'm just very grateful to be in this world. I love the low carb space and I love learning and I love I love the fact that the ketogenic diet is so much more than weight loss. If anything, weight loss is kind of the most uninteresting part of the diet, even though that's what grabs people. But uh, the real therapeutic benefits are what keep me very passionate and motivated to learn. And yeah, so now I just work um, as his assistant and I write with him and we communicate the science together. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I think um, it also opens up kind of a great spot to start. Because when you mentioned like the ketogenic diet and weight loss, I think a lot of people definitely think of it as that or that's their first impression. And then they also think that this is a relatively new phenomenon that the ketogenic diet is this kind of new process or this thing we just discovered or at best is kind of a branch off from your more traditional Atkins style but there's actually a history to the ketogenic diet. Do you, do you want to share with us kind of how far back that goes and kind of how it got its start? Yeah, for sure. So the diet was really introduced on the premise that it would mimic the metabolic state of fasting, which fasting was known for like centuries to be therapeutic, especially in terms of epilepsy. So in the 1920s, the first clinical study came out from the Mayo Clinic showing the efficacy of the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. And so they figured out that, okay, we could mimic the state of fasting if we reduce carbohydrates from the diet. And at this time, this was the classical ketogenic diet, which was a four to one ketogenic diet, which is four parts fat to one part carbs and protein combined. Um, and it worked out to like one gram per kilogram of uh, for protein. So it's like very low. Your diet is pretty much 90% fat. Um, and, but it was shown to be efficacious and it, and it definitely produced a state of ketosis. In medical literature, there was chapters on it in textbooks, but once uh, anti-epileptic medications were introduced, the diet was largely forgotten. And then from there, um, the Charlie Foundation was actually founded with Jim Abram's son, Charlie Abram, who cured his epilepsy with the ketogenic diet. This was kind of the reintroduce, reintroduction of the diet back into the literature. And now since then, um, like if you look at the PubMed uh, searches for a ketogenic diet, it's gone up substantially. And now we know it's being used in many more conditions than just epilepsy and cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so it all really stemmed back to the idea that fasting was a therapy and how could we mimic this with a diet so that we didn't fasting obviously came with limitations. So, um, but that's definitely where the, the diet started. Yeah. I mean, I want to just, just comment. Somebody said at the beginning there about, you know, not having to eat all the time, you know, and, and I think if we, if we look, look at, look to, to, to animals in the wild to, to inspire us on how, 
we may or may not eat. There are certain animals that eat constantly. They're called herbivores and they're eating, you know, pretty much all their waking hours. And then there are other animals that, that eat a fat, you know, protein heavier diet or a fat heavier diet that eat infrequently, you know, and I, I would point to things like carnivorous animals that they might, might eat once a day or once every three or four days. And so I think there's, there's certainly different eating schemes and, uh, you know, whether you're actually not eating, which certainly is fasting, or you're eating a ketogenic style, a high fat diet, which mimics that, you know, that, that's, that's kind of an interesting dichotomy. And some, some folks think that we should eat like herbivores and constantly eat all the time, uh, which is sometimes difficult to do. And it, and it doesn't promote this ketogenic effect, which, you know, may or may not be good for us. I'm sure you'll tell us what potentially is good for us, but uh, that's just an observation, uh, you know, that I've seen. Uh, and, and it certainly, it makes it easier to fast when you're getting enough fat in your diet. And, and I would argue even protein too can be helpful, but anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. And like, that's a big part of the ketogenic diet and why it does work for weight loss is because it regulates our appetite and we can go periods of time without food and we can fast very easily. This definitely helps with a, creating a calorie deficit if weight loss is your goal. Um, but yeah, it's, it's known to regulate our appetite and um, promote periods without food so that we can finally give our digestive system a rest. Like I don't want to be constantly shoving food in my mouth. I don't, there was a time where I was just like packing food all the time. Like I would have to carry like coolers around with me. I'm like, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. So it's, it's a, a liberating lifestyle. Yeah. And I think it's, it's always interesting too, when you, when you just look at what people kind of gravitate towards from an intuitive side of things. And, you know, the unique thing I think about the ketogenic diets is like people tend to just space their meals out more almost by default or end up eating sometimes even just one meal a day, one bigger meal a day. Or I think I see a lot more people kind of doing two where they eat like a late breakfast, early lunch, and then a dinner. And that's kind of just the way their body ends up kind of gravitating towards that. So, um, to maybe kind of semi address that, do you want to talk a little bit about like what is what does it take to actually get into ketosis? Because I think when people look at it, sometimes at first they think, okay, well, I can't eat carbohydrates, or they think here's this magic number of grams of carbohydrates where I have this allowance. Uh, like, what do you see in terms of variances amongst what people need to do to get into ketosis? And then what things are kind of staples that is are pretty much like this kind of has to happen for everybody in order for it to work? Yeah, so the ketogenic diet is pretty much just an umbrella term uh, for a diet that puts you in a state of ketosis. And that can be different for everyone. Um, depends on your activity level, your insulin sensitivity, like it depends on a lot of your age, everything. So uh, like for me, a ketogenic diet is probably like people probably think I eat way too many carbs, but it's just because I'm very active. I'm young. I have a fast metabolism. Like I, I can handle probably a bigger amount of carbs than most people, but maintain a state of ketosis. Um, so people, yeah, like they, I think it's good to have like these guidelines at first, like, oh, stick to under 50 grams of carbs, um, eat one to 1.8 grams of protein per pound lean body mass, um, and then the rest fat. So if you have these guidelines, it's easier to just have an idea, but I think you can modify as you and do some trial and error. Like I've tested a lot of keto treats and keto snacks that claim that they have like two grams net carbs, but sometimes they'll kick you out of ketosis. So 
sometimes these net carb values don't matter. Um, and like, it depends on the type of fiber that these bars are using or these brownies or whatever it is I'm testing that day. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of trial and error, I think with the ketogenic diet and, uh, you kind of have to, uh, honestly, testing is a very important part if you want to get into ketosis. So, um, I test my blood, um, a lot and I've done a lot of glucose testing as well. And it helps to understand how the body enters ketosis so that you understand why you're eating the certain foods. So the fastest way to get into ketosis is obviously just abstaining from food altogether. So fasting. Um, and when you think of transitioning into ketosis from a fasting point of view, you, you first, you burn through any circulating fuel, obviously, then your liver, liver will start um, tapping into its uh, glycogen stores. So we'll start converting our liver glycogen into glucose. And then after that, we'll start breaking down amino acids from our stored, uh, from muscle. Um, but this only is transient. It only lasts like a week. And it's, we show, it's been shown that nitrogen excretion through our urine, which is a proxy of catabolism, uh, protein catabolism, uh, that slows as we transition into keto adaptation. So you only will break down muscle in the start and that's nothing to freak out about. Um, once we start, pro, uh, our insulin's drop so low, then our glucagon's up, we can finally start producing ketones. And as the more we produce ketones, the less reliant our muscles are on glucose. They start using free fatty acids, sparing uh, the ketones to our brain. And um, so that you stop breaking down protein. And then as we're, we become keto adapted, we're relying on free fatty acids and ketones for fuel and any glucose that we require. We'll produce um, glucose from the glycerol backbone of free fatty acids, but we really need the insulin low and we need the glucagon high in order to liberate our free fatty acids in order to um, promote ketogenesis in the liver. And this all stems back to carbohydrates. And so if you, if you're looking at your plate of food and you're like, think, and, and if there's carbohydrates on it, you can think like, okay, that's going to spike my gl blood glucose. That's going to release insulin. That's going to prevent ketogenesis. And that's going to stop that's going to prevent me from accessing my stored body fat. And uh, like, that's the way I look at it. I don't know if I'm just like weird. I like think about what's going on in my body when I'm, what, what I'm putting in my mouth, but it helps me understand like, okay, if I uh, went and did a hard workout, like how much glycogen um, did I burn through? Does that mean I can eat more carbs and stay in ketosis? Um, and like, I know Peter Tia, like he'll say like, he's going to fast all day if he's, gonna have like a meal or like a bigger meal or something at night um and he like he thinks of the way like our glycogen stores work to do that and I kind of think that way too um so it's all very individual and um there's many factors that go into sustaining and entering a state of ketosis if all that made sense <laughs> Yeah, Christy, that makes sense. Um, let me ask you about, uh, and this is something that, that certainly comes up when people, when we talk about measuring blood ketones or, or even some of the, the, the respired ketones that we see with some of the breath meters now, is that there is a concept that, you know, you, you'll make ketones, you'll excrete ketones, and you'll utilize ketones. And so there's a, a balance between all of those things that are happening that, that ultimately are going to determine what your blood beta hydroxybutyrate level is, for example. Um, so at, at a period of time, and I know you know, if we look at the work from uh, uh, Steve Finney and, and Jeff Volek talking about ketosis, they defined a state of ketosis at 0 
millimolar, if I'm not mistaken. And, and they've yeah. since come back on that and said maybe even lower might be acceptable, maybe 0.3, 0.4. So what do you talk, when we talk about ketosis, what does it mean to you? I mean, there's some people that they're, they're striving to have the highest possible ketone levels possible. Is there an advantage to that? Or does that just mean you're inefficient at utilizing them? Uh, you're wasting more of them. Talk to us about, uh, you know, when we talk about blood testing, you know, what are we looking for? Yeah, so I think clinically defined um, ketosis is above 0 0.5. And Dom always says 0 0.5 to 3 millimoles is uh, optimal. So that's kind of what I relay, um, the same message. Um, anything above that, yeah, it would kind of seem like your body is just not using the ketones properly. Even me, like I started off um, the first like few months of the ketogenic diet, I had really high ketone readings like four or five. Um, and my glucose was like really low. I was always in a therapeutic state of ketosis. And, uh, but now my ketones, like I can barely get above two sometimes. And I'm thinking that that's just part of the adaptation where my body is getting really good at using ketones for fuel. So then there's less circulating. Um, but I don't really think that that's well known. I think it's all just kind of anecdotal. Um, and from what people experience but i don't think anything above three would be necessary that it just that just means that yeah you might not just be using the ketones properly and then if you're excreting them you don't want to be excreting a lot because that that also means that you're not using them either um so uh yeah i don't know i think it's i think it's a nuanced area right now yeah, I mean, I think certainly early on, you know, people waste them. And, and that's the one way to get rid of energy. I mean, because you're just, you're just, you know, urinating and breathing out energy. So you're not, you're not storing it. So that, that may be one thought, but I think people, once they adapt, they get past that. And we've seen, you know, I know, I know Zach is probably aware. I think you might've been part of a study that did that where they looked at and you saw that athletes that chronically adapt to a ketogenic diet have relatively low levels of ketosis they weren't they aren't seeing the point threes and you know are the 3.0s and fours are seeing much lower levels and i think it has to do with chronic adaptation i don't know zach do you want to weigh in on this yeah i think you know that's one thing i think they noticed with the faster study with volick um was that a lot of these keto adapted extreme endurance athletes there there was something going on where it seemed like due to the high level of activity the body was either like just very good at utilizing the ketones at that point, And that, that kept those blood markers a little lower than what they would maybe expect for someone at rest. And, um, you know, from my own experience too, I find it really interesting about the timing of testing, testing blood ketones. And this last fall, I actually did a little self experiment just to kind of see where I was at when I have my carbohydrates the highest. So like what I'll do is I'll, I, I look at my training as a periodized approach. So then I look at my nutrition as a periodized approach as well. And uh, within the context of a high fat, low carb diet, this kind of highlights what you were saying before, where that lifestyle component is actually a pretty big factor in determining on whether you stay in ketosis or not at certain levels of carbohydrate. And what I ended up noticing during that like three, four week stretch where I was testing two to three times a day was even when I would have a day where I'd get upwards to maybe 200 grams of carbohydrate, I would still be in ketosis and it would be usually between sometimes i'd be below 1.0 but it would usually be about 1.0 and at the most about 2.0 millimoles um so from that blood ketone metric i was very much you know burning ketone bodies and using that as a 
is a primary fuel source, but my level of activity, I guess, which, you know, at times was three plus hours a day and sometimes twice a day. So like, I think just like you were saying, Christy, I was probably type tapping into my, to my muscle glycogen often enough that when I did have the carbohydrates, which would typically be right after the workout, um, it probably didn't bump me out of ketosis or if it, if it did, it was pretty, pretty, uh, um, short term. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. 200 grams. Yeah. It wasn't 200 every day, but, um, usually like, uh, you know, it's really, I think I probably confuse as many people as, as I inform with some of this stuff because like sometimes I'll express what I'm eating during certain phases of training as like a percentage and, you know, I, when I first started doing it, I didn't realize this, but then I realized that I'm probably confusing people a bit with that. Cause I'll say like during peak training, I might hit 20% of my intake from carbohydrates where it gets kind of tricky is like, I don't do the same exact workout every day, day in and day out. So I might do a really big day, um, like a long run or something like that training for a hundred miler. And that might be a four hour, sometimes five hour run. And yeah, so my my, my fuel intake for that day would represent like a 20% carbohydrate intake, but I'm most definitely running a calorie deficit that day. Because if I do a four or five hour effort one day, the next day I might not do anything. Or if I do, it's going to be like an hour long and it's gonna be really, really low intensity. So the more likely situation for me there is I'm going to run a, a rather large calorie deficit during the day I'm most active and I'm going to make up that calorie deficit on the easy day afterwards. And that easy day afterwards is when I'm going to be doing kind of those really hyper low carbohydrate days. Uh, so if you look at the 20% carbohydrate, it's 20% of what I take in, but it's maybe not 20% of the fuel I metabolized on the day itself of that activity level. So I think that's where it gets a little confusing for folks. They'll look at that and they'll be like, well, you know, 20% is certainly going to kick you out of ketosis, but, <laughs> but it is interesting. And it, it's one of those things, like you said, it, the really the only way to know, I guess, is to test yourself and kind of find out what foods do what to you and what activities do what and all that other stuff and kind of create your own uh, roadmap, so to speak. Yeah. I think many ketogenic lifestyle people would be jealous that you get to still eat carbs <laughs> and be in ketosis. <laughs> Yeah. And well, it's interesting. But maybe they wouldn't be jealous of running for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of some of the more interesting console calls I'll do will be someone who'll, they'll, they'll sign up thinking like that and they'll be eating like 30 grams of carbohydrate or something like that. And they'll be like training for a triathlon and they'll be putting in like 15 hours a week training and they, they explain what's happening and and they'll think I'm going to tell them they got to lower their carbohydrates from 30 grams down to even to nothing or even lower. And they're usually kind of surprised when I say, well, let's, let's maybe look at a hundred grams and see if that's kind of more, more uh, beneficial for your lifestyle in terms of ketosis versus kind of the more traditional or classical ketogenic approach. Like what you had highlighted earlier was originally designed for folks dealing with epileptic seizures, not necessarily folks going out and doing an Ironman triathlon. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, it just goes you. to show that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go on. No, go ahead and answer. Then I had a question. I was gonna. I was gonna bring in. I was just gonna say it goes to show that everyone is so different. Mm -hmm. 
What are your What are your thoughts regarding and we hear this quite a bit? You know, ketosis long term is not sustainable because it will result in chronically elevated cortisol levels, perhaps, or it will cause uh, hormone dysfunction, particularly things like thyroid hormone. Um, and and being in a constant state of ketosis year round is is problematic. So, what are your what are your thoughts regarding that? Uh, I definitely appreciate the concept of metabolic flexibility. Um, so even for myself, even though I say like I'm, I follow a ketogenic diet pretty much all the time, there are times I go out of ketosis and like, I'm not scared of like eating too much protein or eating too many vegetables or something one night and it kicks me out of ketosis. Like I don't care if I get kicked out of ketosis just because I know that that's just aiding in my metabolic flexibility. But I'm, I'm still eating relatively low carb where I can get back into ketosis easily. Um, so I think that there should be times when we are going out of ketosis just to make sure our body remembers how to use the cellular machinery to burn carbs and burn fat. Um, so yeah, like I said, I appreciate metabolic flexibility. Um, but I, I don't know if long-term sustainability, like, I mean, there are children that stay on the ketogenic diet for year after year after year and like they're doing okay they're doing fine so it's definitely in the therapeutic side of things it's been shown that you can stay on the ketogenic diet long term but for the average joe just trying to optimize their health um, maybe it would be uh, beneficial to go in and out of ketosis here and there um I just personally like e-following a ketogenic lifestyle. Sometimes I'm required to be in ketosis if I'm testing products. Um, Dom and I do a lot of, of testing. And so I want to be in ketosis before doing that. So I make sure to just be following a ketogenic diet. Um, but in terms of like hormones and thyroid and everything, honestly, I haven't put in a ton of research into that. I can only speak to my personal experience. And I, when following this low fat or vegan diet um i lost my period for about a year and a half and once i started the ketogenic diet um i got it back and i really attribute my hormone regulation and my period back to eating red meat and upping my fats um it's kind of weird on my horm my like <laughs> i don't know if i'm going too much information here but my period is way more regular around when I'm eating red meat. And it's just, it's a very interesting correlation I've made. Um, but for thyroid, I think that that all just depends on how many cap, like if there's so much context um, involved, like, are you in a calorie deficit? Are you trying to lose weight? Are you overweight? Are, are you underweight? Uh, yeah, like how many calories are you eating? That's all regulating the thyroid. And if you're in a like chronic calorie deficit and if it's severe enough you're gonna lower your thyroid but if you're if you're eating enough calories for your body um i and but still in a state of ketosis i don't know if uh it's been shown that your thyroid levels will drop um which would obviously affect female hormones and everything but um like i said i can't re can't really go into depth about that i can only speak from my personal experience and i've got my period back in a state of ketosis. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Hey, you brought up, you, you mentioned in there, you're not afraid of protein. And a lot of people, you know, particularly on a ketogenic diet, we've been told keep protein relatively low because it'll, it'll kick people out of ketosis. Now, as you probably know, I follow and, and, and 
know of many, many people following a meat-based diet, which tends to be higher in protein. In fact, it often, uh, protein will be 30% or higher, of, you know, percentage of the diet per calorie, you know, and I still see all the time people setting their ketone levels, which are quite high, despite relatively high amounts of protein. So what's the current thought on protein and ketone production? Or do we have any data on that that you guys have looked at? Uh, yeah, I really want to do some comprehensive testing on myself just because I am a little confused about it. Like I listened to Ben Bickman and his views on protein and glucagon. And yes, we need the protein to, to activate or to release glucagon so that we don't shut down gluconeogenesis. So we can, uh, we need gluconeogenesis if we're in a state of ketosis. Um, so that shouldn't be underappreciated and we shouldn't fear that. Um, but like I talked to Dom in his lab and they are in agreement that protein can kick you out of ketosis. Um, so I honestly just want to do a lot of testing on myself and figure out like, okay, and, and use different types of protein. So like a chicken breast, which is just like pure protein, nothing else, um, versus like a fatty cut of meat or red meat. Um, and maybe like, or like a whey protein shake, like I want to do a comprehensive test of all these things and report my, what data I, um, I get back from that because I think there's, yeah, there's so many misconceptions and, uh, but at like from a physiological standpoint, if protein does release insulin and insulin prevents ketogenesis, like it does make sense in that sense, in that way that it would prevent ketone production but would it kick you out of ketosis i don't know i mean you probably have to eat a lot of protein um and even if you were kicked out of ketosis with protein you're gonna get back into ketosis pretty fast like you're not you're not gonna be storing like a ton of glycogen from that and having uh raised insulin for a long period of time it's gonna be very minute um but i yeah again i think you just have to test for yourself like if you're eating a ton of meat and you get kicked out of ketosis, then yeah, maybe you do have to prevent or cut back a little, but I don't think you ever have to restrict protein. Um, be, like, because you're scared of it, like you should never go under like 1.5 grams per pound of body weight, because that's, I don't know, I, I'm more fearful of losing uh, than I am of kicking myself out of ketosis. I want to go into old age with muscle mass. I think it's really scary for older people to be restricting protein or be scared of protein um, because that is going into old age with muscle mass is one of the predictors of longevity. So um, I, I think protein is very important and no one should be restricting it. Um, but then again, I don't think you should be overeating it. Um, because I think they're like in terms of ketosis, I, I think there is um, value in, in thinking that it could kick you out of ketosis, but I, I don't know. I need to test for myself so I can gather my thoughts on that. Yeah. Just a point of clarification. Cause you, you, and, and just cause I don't want people to get confused with this. Cause you said no less than 1.5 grams per pound. And, I, and perhaps you meant kilogram on that, you know, because you know, I mean, I mean the recommendations yeah. I've seen for muscle building tend to be about 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram and so 1.5 right, right. so just to clarify that point but i but i but you know i eat more than that just to be, just to be <laughs> fully honest with that i probably eat you know something like a pound per per a gram per pound or 
I eat probably what you would recommend at 1.5 per pound, which is which a lot of people say. <laughs> now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. So you you had pointed out, uh, rightfully so, that fat loss was probably the least interesting part of a ketogenic diet and the therapeutic benefits are much more interesting and, and probably something we should talk about. So can you, can you, can you kind of develop that a little more and talk about what do you mean by therapeutic benefits of ketosis? Yeah. Um, I mean, I get really excited researching like neurodegeneration um, and the, and the use of a ketogenic diet for that. So Stephen Kunain um, is a big researcher in the realm of Alzheimer's and I really look up to him and I love his research. Um, so what he, what he um, writes about is the fact that Alzheimer's is an energy crisis in the brain. So glucose metabolism is impaired as we age in the case of Alzheimer's, um, which can start in age, like when we're like 35, 40 years old, and this precedes dementia. So if there's a way to prevent that energy crisis from even occurring, which can be done using ketones, whether that's exogenous ketones, MCTs, or following a ketogenic diet, uh, it's been shown that even though in the, um, the case of impaired glucose metabolism, our brains can still mobilize or still use and metabolize ketones. So uh, preventing this energy crisis, providing energy to the brain where our neurons will have the uh, energy to repair themselves and we uh, won't see this cognitive decline um, with ketones. And then there's Mary Newport's sto- story with her husband who used MCTs and coconut oil and saw like just within like two weeks an improvement um, in his cognitive function and his scores. And he later went on to use beta hydroxybutyrate supplements, but it was just like he was in late stage Alzheimer's and he was able to reverse some of the symptoms. So that kind of stuff really excites me. And it's really um, amazing to know that we have this alternative fuel source that we can endogenously make ourselves and it could potentially reverse cognitive decline. Um, and that's really scary too. There's, it's like one in three people get Alzheimer's past the age of 80. That's like a crazy statistic. And when it's something, if it's just because of impaired glucose metabolism and it can be so easily prevented or fixed or uh, just at least improved, um, that's what gets me really excited. And then there's obviously the cancer side of things, which I'm not going to go into extreme depth in because I think that's something Dom can talk to. Um, and uh, like that, his lab has like half of half of his lab is basically a cancer lab. 
and when we understand the Warburg effect and the increase of glycolysis and um, using ketones as a way or the ketogenic diet to starve cancer cells of their preferred fuel source, which is glucose, uh, like that kind of stuff really, I think is way more interesting than weight loss. Um, but then again, weight loss is probably on a very important part of the diet because if someone's overweight and then their disease is because of hyperinsulinemia or um, yeah, like insulin resistance, um, and then losing weight is what's going to help with those underlying issues, then that is obviously very important. And the ketogenic diet can do that um, by virtue of helping create that calorie deficit needed to lose weight. And if that's what reduces or improves insulin sensitivity, and if that's what's improving cognitive function, if, and if that's what's improving a disease state, then um, I guess <laughs> I guess we can give some value to the weight loss effects of the diet. But yeah, at the end of the day, I I really like the the research into neurodegeneration, cancer, um, diabetes, which obviously has parts of it as weight loss as well. But uh, yeah, there's so there's so many new areas of research that are coming out, and now there's like it's going into autism. There's research into canines and everything. So yeah, I I think that that's what's the most interesting part about the diet. Yeah, you know, you've, you're highlighting some really interesting things too from the therapeutic side because, like, I think it, what people oftentimes miss is kind of the long-term effects of their nutrition. Like, you know, someone who's eating kind of a more standard American diet, they may they may be fit, they may be healthy, and they look at that and they think, well, I mean, this is going to work for me. But then, if, uh, if they find themselves in a in that one of the one of three folks in the age of 80 plus with Alzheimer's, you know, it's kind of, it's almost too late. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think people aren't always thinking about years in the future. They're thinking about, well, how do I feel now? What's happening with some of this stuff? And, you know, another interesting thing with that too, was like, you know, when you mentioned that you are more worried about your protein getting too low than too high I mean, that's just as another example of that. We've had a, a few protein experts on the show, most recently, Professor Don Lehman and uh, Professor Jose Antonio, like you mentioned, uh, Dr. Ben Bickman. And, you know, one thing that I found really interesting with our interview with Don Lehman was just this topic of bone density in protein and getting high quality sources of protein and what role that plays in bone density and some of the misconceptions we've had just due to, you know, people looking at it incorrectly where an increased protein diet showed more calcium in the urine, which made people think like it was interrupting the absorption of calcium. But in reality, it was just improving the efficiency of it, which the body was able to utilize calcium. So it was, it was dumping the excess and uh, just seeing things like that. Like, I mean, that's what, that was, that's what would worry me the most if I, I got, you know, my bones got so frail. And then when you get older, like in your seventies, if you break a bone, the likelihood of you rehabbing that and coming back as strong is so low at that point, you're better off just avoiding the injury altogether and not having to try to figure that out at that elder stages of life. Yeah. I'd be more scared of eating like abundance of oxalates from plant foods than I would of the calcium inhibition from protein hypothetically yeah, <laughs> yeah those who are gonna buy their calcium and prevent mm -hmm. the absorption of that 
which I'm yeah. sure you can appreciate, Sean. <laughs> yeah, Sean's on essentially an oxalate-free diet. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oxalates aren't on my list of things I worry about, particularly with my diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, that just highlights the simplicity of, the, of that approach is like, I think, you know, we, we've had a couple oxalate folks on the show too, and it, it makes me think like, well, how much should I l limit versus just manage and, you know, the simplicity of something like a carnivore diet, I guess, is you just don't have to think about that because you're just not going to get any oxalates in an approach like that. And then, then it's just out of sight, out of mind, more or less. Yeah. I think it's, it's becoming so hard to be healthy nowadays. It's like we can't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, well, it's funny, too, because, like, as humans, we seem to want to eat everything. And it's like we're like, if you look anywhere else in the animal kingdom, it's like they're eating a few things at most. And doing doing better, I guess, from a from a, a chronic illness standpoint, when they're doing that, than they are when when we domesticate them and start feeding them non-species appropriate stuff. So, it's I think it's one of those things where if you it becomes a psychological battle where you look around and see all the things you could potentially eat if you decided just to eat everything in sight, and then when you you take on an approach like a carnivore or a ketogenic diet all of a sudden a lot of those things come off the table in, at least in a large capacity and it can be a hurdle for people to get over mentally at first to kind of reprogram what they actually consider as food. Yeah, for sure. And I think even nowadays, like the ketogenic diet itself is like um, causing some psychological things too, just because like I always uh, compare it to the paleo diet, like the paleo diet was introduced uh, with really good in, uh, intentions, but then it turned into like sweet potato brownies with a ton of honey and like people are just eating like paleo treats and that's kind of what I'm scared of happening. Well, it's, it is happening for the ketogenic diet where you can just like eat keto cookies all day and yeah, you're in ketosis, but you're just eating like fake food. Um, and I, that's, that's, I guess what comes with a diet becoming like a fad. Um, and it does help with like children trying to normalize themselves in society who have to stay in ketosis to not have a seizure during the day or something. So I definitely see a point for these foods, but it's uh, like for me, I need to cut out treats altogether, regardless of the sweetener, if it's honey or stevia, like it doesn't matter. Uh, like I won't get over my cravings for something sweet unless I just cut them out altogether. And I think if you're really trying to make a difference in your lifestyle, I think you just have to cut those things out altogether. And yeah, it is like, uh, even if it's like a keto treat, um, it, I think it really helps for people to get over these like food addictions. And I think that's what the carnivore diet is really good with because it's, it's like a mono diet. Um, you, you're only eating one thing. Well, it is a mono diet. Um, and so it's, or like the potato diet, how you only have this one thing, like you're not going to become, you're going to naturally just regulate your, your intake of this one food and you get over these. You don't have to question what you're going to eat because you already know what's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner or however many meals you eat a day. I'm offended that you compare the carnivore diet to the potato diet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, about the sweeteners and stuff like that and and you are right i mean the problem with when people tell me they're on a ketogenic diet i have no idea what they're eating because it could be just complete garbage there are so many of these keto products and keto treats and stuff like that there and and i do agree the fact that you, you know i think you really do have to 
give your body a complete break from sweeteners of all type for a period of time to kind of get past that. You know, because we live in this this time of it's dessert all the time. You know, it's like dessert 24-7 for most people. And it's all around us and, and we can always have it. And people want to do it because it's just what we, what we like to do and it doesn't help us. Let me, and you mentioned, because uh, we had Thomas Seyfried on the show, you know, I know that him and Dom have collaborated a little bit on the cancer stuff. And we've had Amy Berger talking about Alzheimer's. So all these great topics are coming up. But what, what are you guys working on specifically? I mean, we're, tell us more specifically your role in, in how you're working with, with uh, Dom D'Agostino and what are you guys testing right now? I'd like to hear some of the newer stuff that we may not know about. Maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit about the role of exogenous ketones. I don't know if you have any knowledge or, or any kind of uh, experience with that. Uh, yeah, so I don't work directly in the lab. Um, like I'm not a student of his. I Initially, I reached out to him looking for a PhD position, but he wasn't looking for new students at that time. Um, so I just kind of got taken on for outreach programs, educating um, all the stuff outside the lab. And uh, so I do go visit the lab um, about like every other month though. And I feel like I'm part of the lab, but definitely not in the experiments at all. Um, so Dom's research is really uh, in, it's funded by the Office of Navy Research. And I don't really want to talk to his research because I think that he would be better to talk to that, obviously. Um, but they just released a paper on inflammation and the use of exogenous ketones to prevent inflammation-induced seizures. So um, this is all in animal models. All their research is in animal models. Um, but the use of exogenous ketones was pre prevented inflammation that they, like they triggered inflammation, showed that the ketones prevented this inflammation, which in turn prevented um, epileptic seizures. So um, there, I think that there's a role for exogenous ketones and when it comes to the therapeutic benefits, if because ketones themselves have been shown to be uh, like a signaling metabolite, almost acting like a hormone in a way. So they there's research showing that they are HDAC inhibitors, which means that they're inhibiting a gene expression inhibitor. So they're opening up our chromosomes uh, which allows for gene expression and we can they, they've shown that it turns on genes that help us um deal with oxidative stress so we can reduce our oxidative stress through virtue of having ketones circulating in our blood it inhibits the nlrp3 inflammasome which is like the starting point for a inflammation cascade that we can prevent that with the, with beta hydroxybutyrate has been shown to inhibit the assembly of this this inflammasome so uh, reducing inflammation, reducing oxidative stress, um, giving off less reactive oxygen species just by virtue of metabolizing ketones versus metabolizing glucose. Um, that's another contributor. Um, so they, they do study all this stuff in their lab. And then, like I said, they do a lot of cancer research. So Angela Poff um, really runs the cancer part of the lab. And uh, she she's amazing. She's great. Um, there's she gave a great, great presentation at the Metabolic Health Summit uh, just in January. Um, so yeah, like I said, I don't really want to speak to their research just because I'm not exactly involved in it. I'm more so part of the communicating and um, educating with, with whatever Dom's asked to do, basically. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's cool. But in terms of... Oh, sorry. Go on. 
No, that's all right. I was just going to say, it's cool to know that they're, they're, they're doing some deep dives into some of this stuff. Cause I think, I think sometimes it's easy to look and say, well, you know, people, people hear, you know, they hear the buzz like, oh, well, a ketogenic diet can help with cancer. And then, you know, some people take a massive leap of faith and think right away, like that's the end all cure to it. When in reality it's, you know, we don't know. So like, uh, but knowing that they're kind of going through those processes and looking into it and trying to see where, where the potential uses are is kind of cool and, and certainly a frontier in terms of uh, managing things like that. Yeah, for sure. And like some cancer types can metabolize ketones. So I don't think that there's, it's not just like, oh, the ketogenic diet is going to cure cancer. Uh, there's so much to know. Cancer is like some a very crazy disease and each cancer type has to be considered and uh, ketones are not just going to cure every type of cancer. They study in their lab glioblastoma. So, and again, it's an animal model and yes, they've shown great success. Um, a lot of it's in conjugation with other therapies. So like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, they've studied high dose vitamin C, they, um, DCA. Um, yeah, they've done the ketogenic diet and exogenous ketones. So they've done a bunch of different conjugative um, therapies. And most of the time, the best outcomes are when they're combined with other therapies. So it's targeting all different yeah, well, let me let me ask you about uh, exogenous ketones and athletic performance. Can Zach and I are both pretty lifelong athletes here, and and I mean, there's talk about people using it even in a high carb state. You know, adding it in. And do you see there's any benefit to doing that? Do you think that's just kind of shooting yourself in the foot? Um, you know, and when we talk about the you know reductions in the, in inflammasomes and some of the other benefits seen with. Uh, uh, ketones, does that have, does, does that, is that predicated on the fact that, that, that you're not already consuming a bunch of carbohydrates or, or what are your thoughts on that? Or do we have any information on that? I don't fully understand that aspect. I mean, I guess it's giving your body two different fuel sources to choose from. Um, I don't know. I think it's a very complicated, complicated scenario for the body. And I don't think it's a scenario that would even happen in nature well it isn't because we would need lower blood glucose to have high ketones um but personally i i have seen the benefits of taking exogenous ketones especially in a fasted fast through the morning and then i take exogenous ketones and then i go and work out i definitely see a difference in like my endurance capacity and just my mental clarity and my energy and everything i don't use them every day i just kind of do it sometimes for fun, just to flavor my water. I, like, I don't think there's any harm in taking exogenous ketones. I don't think you should necessarily rely on them. And if you're trying to create a calorie deficit, like they still contain calories. Um, I don't know, uh, Zach, do you use exogenous ketones for running? Yeah, you know, this has been something, you know, I've been kind of following the research and it seemed like to me when it kind of first came to the market, it was like, I wasn't a hundred percent convinced that that they didn't just like and this isn't like any of the researchers problems this is just you know people coming up with an exogenous ketone supplement and then trying to sell it as quickly as they can and ride on the the coattails of what research was out there um but then as you know like as it's gotten more and more detailed i've gotten more and more interested and i have played around with it probably for maybe about four or five months now. And what you said is, you know, I'm always trying to be considerate of just, am I thinking something's happening that's not happening, kind of like a placebo effect. 
But the thing I noticed was basically exactly what you said. Like if I would go out for a run in the morning and most of my runs in the morning are either fasted or very close to fasted where, you know, I'll have a cup of coffee maybe with uh, some cream or something in it, but not, not a whole lot, like a hundred calories or something like that total. And uh, you know, I'll go and do the work on that's just kind of the norm for me. So when I started using the exogenous ketones, it felt like uh, um, almost like I had like a little, like a slow little drip of caffeine from the mental side of things, not necessarily the physical side of things. So I think the way to understand that is like when you're doing like an endurance sport, a lot of times it's not complete physical breakdown that's your limiting factor. Because if you're doing the right training, you probably won't do a workout that's going to completely dis- <laughs> completely like floor you um, or you probably did too much. You, you want to do like a micro stress thing over time to kind of build up that system. So the biggest kind of limiter in terms of training volume for me historically, and I think with a lot of endurance athletes, is the mental side of it. It's like if I go, if I, if I go out for a two-hour run day in and day out, after a while, it's going to get hard to mentally want to keep doing that. And what I noticed with the exogenous ketones is it seemed like, especially in the fasted state, it, set, it, it seemed to be a lot easier to stay focused and just kind of wrap your head around what you were going to do, wrap your head around going out for that two, three hour run in a fasted state on the 10th day in a row or something like that versus not having it and kind of getting 30 minutes into that final one and just dreading the whole rest of the run. So it is interesting though. I'm going to keep playing around with it. And, you know, I've, I've tested it with blood ketones too. I mean, it, in, in terms of that, it certainly works out. It's pretty much a guarantee. I jump up one, 1. 1.0 millimoles about 15, 20 minutes after taking it uh, every time. So from that standpoint, I mean, that's, I guess, pretty concrete evidence that there's, there's some efficacy to it in terms of bringing your ketone levels up. Right. And if it's improving your athletic performance, performance and even if it's a placebo effect then it doesn't really matter right yeah yeah we talked about that with electrolytes <laughs> with electrolytes too it's like how much of them do you need and at the end of the day we had professor tim noakes on and he said well you know if you take them and it makes you feel better don't question why just <laughs> know that it's going to help you <laughs> yeah exactly but yeah i mean it could just giving energy to your brain and that way you're relying a lot on glucose you can spare glucose to other parts of the body yeah yeah cool no i mean this has been awesome so far do you want to share with our listeners what is a what is a a ketogenic day of eating look like for you like how do you structure your meals or do you and like what kind of what kind what types of foods do you tend to gravitate towards working well for you personally well my diet is definitely always evolving because science is always changing like within the last month i've been exposed to i'm confused about whether i should be eating plants or not now when i basically was eating like a plant-based diet just a year ago so uh (laughs) um yeah my diet is definitely always evolving right now though currently i'm definitely eating a lot more meat than i ever have in my life um and i've noticed a big difference with doing that i feel so much better so my First meal of the day is usually around like one, two o'clock. And I'll have like three eggs, an avocado. I'll probably have some sort of greens or something, but I don't know, who knows, maybe next week that'll be cut out. Uh, (laughs) And uh, then, yeah, um, I will always have a protein source for dinner. So I have been gravitating towards red meat as of lately. So I rotate through like lamb, beef, 
bison that those three pretty much um and yeah <laughs> my yeah my diet has just been based on protein as of lately um and which is funny because my ketone levels have been lower and i don't know if it's because of being keto adapted or the protein or whatever i'm still in ketosis so i mean at the end of the day it doesn't matter um yeah and then i i'll i'll fast i'll work out fasted in the morning before i eat my first meal of the day and i work online so i'm pretty much in front of my computer all day um just writing researching and yeah i'll, I'll only like i'll only eat two meals a day i try not to snack um, if I'm eating a lot of protein, I don't need to snack. I have feel no desire to just pick at food all day when I'm, when I eat, increase my animal protein. Um, I, yeah, it's crazy how different my appetite is regulated when I started incorporating meat into my diet. It makes me way more productive just being able to eat two meals a day and not having to think about food in between there. Um, it's, it increases my productivity a lot. Um, but I also supplement with MCTs in the morning. Uh, I don't know if you, do you make like bulletproof coffee or anything? Uh, not on a regular basis. You know, I, I kind of like to just do like, like if I were to do bulletproof coffee, it would more or less be before my run in the morning. And for me, it's always just been like, I don't really notice that I, my, my workout is any better by adding the butter to the coffee. So then at that point, I would just rather put a half a stick of butter on like a, on like ground beef or something like that or after right. the, after the That's run. Funny. I always <laughs> say the opposite. I'm like, why would you add butter to your food when you can have it in your coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like the taste of fatty coffee, but I usually don't even put butter. I usually just put MCTs in. Um, I, like MCTs are basically like an exogenous ketone, but at mm -hmm. least your liver is producing the ketones from them. Um, so I kind of look at MCTs like that and I definitely feel like a boost of energy. And even if it's a placebo effect, I don't know, I'm not trying to lose weight so I can afford to add that to my coffees and I really enjoy it. It's the best part of my day. Um, but yeah, other than that, my, my coffee and my two meals and then work in between, work out in there. Uh, that's my day, every day, even weekends. My when you work online every day is a work day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know about that. Um, you know, I think that's an important caveat you made is because you, you're not trying to lose weight. Therefore, you can, you can indulge in, in, a, in a fatty coffee. But I think there are many people that, particularly after they get out of this, and we talked to, to Ken Berry about this, you know, you know, maybe in the beginning, early on transitioning, kind of getting you used to eating a, or relying on fat more than glucose, um, those things have a utilization. But then if you're already overweight and you're wanting to lose weight continuing to add fat you know uh to coffee and stuff like that might not be the best strategy for weight loss you know because the same thing with exogenous ketones which you kind of alluded to you know why taking extra calories just when you should be making your own and, and using your own body fat so that's a good point yeah for sure if anything like a fatty coffee is the easiest thing to cut out if you're trying to cut calories like there's not it it, it you'll get over the fact that you have to drink a black coffee for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, I th and I think that's, that's how I look at all these things, like the keto snacks, the bulletproof coffee and all that stuff is there, they can be great tools. And I think especially like when you get someone just starting, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're overhauling their nutritional choices. So that first 30 days can be a challenge. And, you know, if that the bulletproof coffee or the keto snacks help you kind of get to that marker and convince yourself, 
mentally that this is sustainable, then you can start fine tuning things. And, and like you said, you know, if someone's putting a couple hundred calories or a few hundred calories of, of butter or MCT oil in their coffee in the morning, and then they find themselves feeling really good on the ketogenic diet, once they're, they kind of have that routine in place, if they need to lose 10, 15 pounds or something like that, it, yeah, just drink the coffee without it in there. And you really aren't even changing your routine up and you're yeah, just yeah. driving that, that calorie deficit. So I think it, it can be very useful in that context, like you said. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So what do you have kind of coming up, Christy? And uh, if anything exciting down the pipe in terms of, uh, conferences or new things going on and then uh, also where can our listeners find you on either social media or in the internet yeah so i'm involved in a lot of different projects at the moment um uh always working with dom uh he's also an organizer for the metabolic health summit which i mentioned it was just in january and we're already gearing up for 2020 it's definitely a project uh so that's always on that's always happening. And I'm actually been teaming up with Brian Sanders from Food Lives, which you guys also had on the podcast. So I'm helping him create some content around his new company, Sapien. And uh, we, uh, what else am I involved in? <laughs> yeah, every, so many different things. Yeah. So those are, those are the main things. I'm heading out to LA to collaborate with Brian soon and uh, exciting things um, coming from there. And really, the only platform that you can really find me on is Instagram. My handle is Christy Stores, K-R-I-S-T-I-S-T-O-R-S. Um, my last name is Stores Chef, but had to had to cut that down because I didn't think people would be able to spell it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm always uh, working on new projects and doing different things. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Brian's got some cool stuff going on. That's awesome that you're collaborating with him, and he certainly. I think getting a good message out there to folks and doing some cool stuff. And uh, in terms of your Instagram accounts, I think that every listener here is should definitely go follow you, Christy. I think your Instagram account is really unique in that it's, it's not necessarily just a picture and a little blurb. You've got some actual really detailed informative stuff on there and it, you break it down in a way that could be confusing. Like the topic could be confusing, but the way you explained it is, is very easy to understand for anyone who's interested in that stuff. So uh, we'll definitely link that to the show notes and listeners can go over and check that out and, and, and learn. <laughs> cool. Thank you. I appreciate that, that feedback. <laughs> cool. Sean, do you got anything else or? Uh, no, I was just looking at her Instagram account, looking at her doing her, her yoga <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I haven't seen it before, but no, great, great, oh, great, great information. No, I think it's wonderful. And I, and, and, you know, you'll have to say hi to Brian for me. Um, you know, uh, yeah, Brian's got some good stuff going on. Can't wait for his film to come out. I know. I'm very excited. Yeah, but it, this has been fun. And, you know, hopefully we will run into each other in real life at some point. I'm sure that will happen. I can't imagine it not happening at some point. So anyway, um, I'm out in the L.A. area, too. So, you know, if you guys come down, maybe we'll go eat some lunch, grab a steak or something like that when you get out here sometime. It'll be fun. All right. Let's plan it. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, 
please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.